This episode is all about sex, people sex, dolphin sex, sexy slutty comedian Rachel Green. It's Sexy Times on the Leftscape! I'm Wendy Sheridan, and it's 258 days to Election Day, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hey, I am Robin Renee. Hello, I'm Mary McGinley, and I'm going to tell you a random fact. Random fact number one is February 19th is in music history. In 1981, George Harrison was ordered to pay A.B. KCO Music, the sum of $587,000, wow, wow. Uh, for subconscious plagiarism <laughs> between his song, My Sweet Lord, and the chiffons, He's So Fine. And also in 1997, Miles Davis received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Fact number two, today, the 19th of February, is... Ariel Sheridan's birthday. She's very important to me because she's my daughter. Happy birthday, Ariel. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Ariel. <laughs> and uh, fact number three. Dolphin sex lasts for about 10 seconds, but they can repeat it dozens of times in less than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> they can, but do they? I think they do. Well, I also thought that dolphins were generally two males per female when they're busy having sex oh they do everything dolphins they're are very yeah <laughs> did you ever see that news thing about the girls who were the dolphin handlers who had to jerk the dolphins off a lot to get them to pay attention <laughs> oh yeah no. I, yeah i know that story <laughs> and this is actually uh come <laughs> The fact number three came from a, a, a link of, of surprise, surprising dolphin sex facts. So you can learn much more about them if you go to our website. I wonder if it was those girls who were the handlers who handlers. Handlers, ha uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh, Who yes. wrote that? I don't think so. But I think it was mentioned, actually. So. And what now else? that we're all worked up, we're going we're gonna to go right into all of the news that we can handle. Well, the okay. news is definitely a uh, a buzzkill this week. Oh my god! I I yeah. Uh, this first piece is a inter is an interactive piece from the New York Times that lists all of our president's ecological rollbacks. And I started reading the list, and then I started crying. It, it's I didn't even get halfway through the fucking list, and I can't even deal with it. it. It's it's like, oh my god, he's destroying the fucking planet single-handedly. Yeah. Well, my friend Marcello sent this in to me because he feels really strongly about the idea that the Democrats right now are just not talking about what's most important. Like, there are lots of things. I mean, all of the 
corruption and the stuff that's been happening with Russia and Ukraine and all of it is, we should know about it, you know? But his point was like, why are we not saying every single day, like, do you want to have a planet where we can live? Like, do you want your children to have clean water? Do you want there to continue to be species other than humans, you know? <laughs> or um, humans. It's because... Including humans. Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, it, it's something that's so vitally important that people just aren't mentioning like uh, it, that you would in the way that you would expect on the news like for could example could it be that people don't really believe it well, or well i think that's one thing i mean i but there are a lot of people who just aren't thinking about any of it i think that's i think thing. maybe it's too abstract or something for them to get wrap their minds around or how something. is it it's it's not abstract it's yeah, you know they're blowing up they're blowing up indian burial grounds to build a wall They've reduced the water, rescinded the water pollution regulations for fracking on federal and Indian lands. So basically, you know, because I guess the states control the state-owned lands and they can say, no, you can't do this stuff. But the federal government has has control over and it, and Indian lands. It's like really they they the Indians aren't allowed to self determine. I this is that's ridiculous. I mean, and that's, I guess, what all the 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 protest and and the and the laws, the laws that they're trying to to pass now in various states, making it illegal to protest pipelines. Mm. You know, they're putting all of these little pieces, they're moving all these little chess pieces in place, and once everything is in place, you won't be able to have an environmental protest because they can legally arrest you at that point. You know, we're not all Jane Fonda and can afford to be arrested every Friday, right? Do you think that people just assume that, oh, well, I'll vote him out and then we can change it all back? I have no idea. It, and it's also, there is so much. Yeah. Just, a, just for a little example, this article talks about rollbacks that have been completed, rollbacks that are in process, and then total rollbacks. So if you just look at the total rollbacks, either hap have which have happened or are in process for air, air pollution and emissions, there are 25 for drilling and extraction, there are 19. Infrastructure and planning, 12. Animals, 10. Toxic substances and safety, 8. Water pollution, 10. And others are 11. So right now there are 95 rollbacks that have either happened or are, you know, in the works of all types. So I don't know. I feel like it's it's not, it wasn't, it hasn't been the most immediate way to try to cause him political problems in terms of like the impeachment stuff was important. And I think to, it, it was something that we needed to call attention to, to um, let people see really what's happening. But I really agree that I feel like people like everyday people are going to get the message a lot more clearly. If you say they are making it more possible for toxic, toxic substances to be in your land and water and food. That's like a, that to me is more concrete. So I don't know politicians to talk about that. I then could it be important. that people feel like they can't do anything about it? I'm, I really feel like it's that people aren't hearing about it. That's my that's the point. There's yeah. like there's so much. There is so much happening. And it's and... not the talking points that the politicians are choosing right now. No, because and it's, it's, it's not health care. It's health care now. It's health care. It's jobs. It's it's all of the economy bullshit that's t getting press. Well, I mean, we. And healthcare were, piece is super important too, so I don't want to. 
Yeah, it's that, all but... super important. That's right. the problem. It's just so much. And at the beginning of all of this, you know, 100 years ago in 2017, that they were saying, pick your causes and other people will pick other causes. And so everything will get covered. And the environment is very important. But my causes were reproductive rights, which I thought we had finished with already, you know, and it's reproductive rights and some other women's issues, you know, so I was, you know, letting the other things saying, okay, you guys need to take care of this other stuff because I'm working on this because I can't, I don't have enough spoons to do it all. And I don't think anybody has enough spoons to do it all. Yeah. And I do know people who really have been championing the environment. So that would be a good check-in for me to do, to find out what they're doing and how they think we can be doing better, you know, even mm-hmm. if our primary cause has been something else up till now. Because it's yeah. huge. So in, in uh, trying to spread the word, this article is in the New York Times. Yeah. 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 And it came out, in December yeah, of 2019. Been, yeah, so, it's been yeah. a while, but this is, you know, this friend of mine is, feels so urgent about this that he really it is. It is. It's something it. that the press, the press has not, the, the mainstream media has been very lacking in their coverage of important stuff. Yeah, we are constantly overwhelmed and they get bowled over by the latest tweet of the day. Yeah. You know, and, so. And our next show, not this show, but our next show in two weeks is the interview I had with, with Jennifer Reitman. She really tears them a new one <laughs> about this. <laughs> and uh, our second news item is about the militarization of ICE. And reading that made me feel sick. So, yeah, it's Tell been a fun morning. If we haven't I'm crying article, and feeling sick. So. <laughs> if we haven't read the article, can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, they, they are, they've they sent a bunch of, and I'm using air quotes, specially trained officers and agents from the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Agency. They sent them to Boston to work with the local ICE officials. And the special training sounds like they're, it's very military-esque. So it's more aggressive. It's like the Gestapo. Oh God! That's where that's where my brain is. It's like, oh, now we have the Gestapo. Great. So part of me is thinking that November isn't going to make any difference at this point. We are maybe already too late. Well, I'm not ready to believe that yet. I don't want to believe that, but there's a part of me that's starting to really think that we've kind of that window. We had a window, and they're going to try to close that fucking window before November. And I hope they can't. Yeah, neither. I mean, the same. And I think that probably leads into the last story, which I didn't write a particular article for, but DOJ in general. Oh, that's another sickening thing. Go ahead. Well, (laughs) I I feel like that is where the pressure ought to be. Basically, um, I'm talking about the Department of Justice and, and William Barr's sort of really being a an advocate for Trump, it seems, is the yeah. case. Um, there's there's a lot of noise now from various quarters demanding he resign. Right. Will that help? Well, if he resigns. Yeah. Well, uh, but... you're right. And I think just making it ab- absolutely clear that, you know, well, first of all, if people haven't heard this, Roger Stone was convicted. Given, yeah, he was convicted. And the, the recommendation was seven to nine years. And Trump tweeted about it, saying it was that was unfair and all yada yada. 
and then even it was though that back. was the standard sentence for what he did. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, he's he's claiming he didn't do anything, which obviously <laughs> is not the case. Um, so, right. So then the Department of Justice sort of rescinded and say and said, well, maybe it shouldn't be that much. I don't know. I'm not aware if they gave a second recommendation instead. They but haven't they... yet, as far as I know. No, right. but everybody, all of the lawyers, all of the, the justice lawyers quit. People, they all resigned and quit. Yes, and all one quit them. the department completely i know that so that's the thing that happened and then it was complicated i guess those are air quotes too by <laughs> the fact that william barr went uh, in an interview said that you know trump's tweets are making it hard for him to do his job and he was like complaining about the tweets which seemed too little too late or just a little bit off brand or something i'm like well, why that's that, that seems really strange that he would say that and mean it well did trump react with an angry tweet no he he reacted saying he that didn't bother him at all then it's bullshit that's all theater (laughs) that was i mean that was the that was the litmus test if it was real then trump Trump would have reacted badly yeah yeah and And, and and i don't know like honestly i don't follow everything he tweets so he could have decided to get angry or feign anger or something at some later point but the the one i saw no he didn't if he did react poorly i think i would have heard about it through the internet right would have would have they would have made a thing out uh, of it you would have heard yeah, yeah. so it and, seems str- oh god sorry so no so i just i just think that was just a, a a bit of political theater to to assuage the masses who actually like the people who are running this country into the toilet to the gold-plated fucking toilet. <laughs> God, so. what an image. Um, <laughs> right. So I, I guess my tendency is to think that because he's been so lockstep, it seemed, in, in helping Trump wherever he can in terms of like putting out his weird little summary of the Mueller report that was not accurate and all the yeah. other things that sort of helped Trump at every turn, that his complaint about the tweets being a problem seemed suspicious to me. I I do want to say that with a caveat, though, that I don't want to get in the position of always believing my own from my own perspective. Okay. Like, I think that it's possible for people to stand up and be like, I'm I don't want to do this anymore. Or I'm going to speak up about like, this is a bridge too far. I'm going to speak up. So I don't I, I just want to consciously tell myself, like, I don't want to always think the worst or think my already formed opinion about someone. You know, that said, this does seem weird to me that you yeah. would say that. So I'm just trying to give myself the thought pattern of still being open because otherwise we just have people who only believe their own media with no other yeah. possibility. And I don't want to do that. Okay. But I do I... want people to put pressure on the DOJ because I feel like this is really vital. We need to have a Department of Justice that has some semblance of being able to look at the whole picture and not just be... And and that's important. And that a, a DOJ that's actually impartial yeah. and nonpartisan. But so let me ask you this: um, the prosecutors who uh, quit over it in protest, do you think that's helpful? I, I don't know. It, it, they're they have to. It's their own consciences, you know. Uh, so it, now, I think so. Yeah, like now we it, see that they protest, but now that they've quit, then they can't be in office and do anything. Well, maybe they weren't, they're not able to do anything anyway. Yeah. You know, they did something and and the guy's making it moot. I think whatever makes the most noise about it, you know, because 
as Wendy says, like we don't we don't want it to be too late to turn the tides of this if it and it feels ominous. I I agree, you know, but maybe a dramatic action like that is kind of like the Saturday Night Massacre kind of thing where people saying like, no, I will not do that. I, I think that matters. So what should we do? I think reaching any governmental official we can with the idea that it's not acceptable. Well, I actually do have a general call to action this okay. week. Okay. Please, people, we all are on the same side. If we're, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope that's true. <laughs> so please don't fight and try to like destroy other people's favorite candidate right now. I just think that that's so counterproductive. I see a lot of it, and I know like the world doesn't really have revolve around Twitter, but you see a lot of it there. But mm. in in general, I think we, you know, I mean the the field is narrowing and everybody has their favorites, but I don't think writing like it's seriously destructive information about anybody else's possibility right now is, that does not help us. I, I don't believe it does. Well, I think the people that are doing that in, in a lot of time, a lot of times when I see that kind of stuff go by my feed, I just discount it completely. I don't pay attention to it. That's what I try to do too. If it's too like serious I don't and negative, know. I don't want to know. I, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know who's sparking that Russian bots. Russian bots. Sometimes, sometimes it is. But you know, I want good information about everybody's positions and ability to complete what they're saying. You know, rather mm -hmm. than people to judge is horrible. Blah blah blah. Or Bernie, this. Right? I just don't go <laughs> Stop. with the positive, not the negative. Yeah, and, and go with knowledge, like knowledge over just negative. Rumor. Well, coming up a little bit later in this show, we're going to have my interview with Rachel Green. She is a comedian and a musician and just a multi-talent overall. Very sexy, sultry material, a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing that. And also, uh, we are going to talk a little bit later about knowing your sexual self. So this is a very sexy show, folks. Hi, Wendy here, inviting you to join us on Patreon, where we publish an extended segment every month. Archived segments include an intimate look at our sexual selves, work-life balance and SEO, and in February, an extended Geekscape segment about Star Trek Picard on CBS All Access. We have tiers for every budget. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash leftscape. Thank you. Hey, everyone, this is Reed Mahalko of readaboutsex.com, and you are listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Well, I am thrilled to be here with Rachel Green on The Leftscape. Rachel is a comic, actor, singer, violinist, and a voiceover artist. And she came to stand-up comedy when she realized her sex and dating stories were too interesting not to share with the world. <laughs> she, uh, she's been featured in the New York Comedy Music Festival, headlined at Hartford Funnybone, and can be seen on Law & Order SVU, Bull, and the upcoming Shonda Rhimes series on Netflix. So welcome, Rachel. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome to see you here and talk to you. Well, they can't see you, but I get to see you for now. <laughs> so uh, let's hear something. 
that you've been doing on on stage lately? Oh, yeah. sure. Well, um, I've been living in Harlem for about four years. Um, living in Harlem, I've actually found a new relationship to Christianity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm Jewish. Because <laughs> uh, every day I walk into my apartment and someone's like, Jesus, them titties. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus, they're heavy. <laughs> So I got curious and uh, put my titties on the scale. They're about 13 pounds each. Yeah, they don't allow me in the deli anymore. <laughs> you know, the other thing we have in Harlem is what I like to call the religious motivational speakers. Because they'll see me and they'll be like, baby girl, God bless you. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And I'm like, okay, thank you. <laughs> I think it's the camel toe. <laughs> Yoga pants. Uh, it's funny telling those jokes uh, without the act outs to accompany them, but uh... right. <laughs> it's definitely a different kind of stage. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Yeah. I am curious about how you arrived at comedy. You talk about, you know, just like having the funny stories and telling the true life stories and stuff. But like, I wonder how you get from knowing that you just have a funny anecdote that you might tell at a party or just tell your friend or something to really crafting something that you do on stage and how that happens. Sure. Well, I never wanted to be a stand-up comic. In fact, that was probably the last thing I ever wanted to be. You know, people always are like, oh, you're so funny. You should do comedy. I was like, yeah, yeah, I might be quick-witted, but I don't think I want to do stand-up. And then I was trying to write a web series based on my sex and dating life. It was kind of like a Broad City Meets Girls. I wanted to talk about alternative lifestyle and, you know, dipping my toe in waters like BDSM and polyamory, but like in a funny way, you know, talk about all the, the foibles and mishaps on on the way to finding love as a slut. But um, <laughs> I'm not a screenwriter. So I, you know, I made up sort of a pilot pitch, but it, it wasn't great. And I got frustrated and I had more of a writing consultant than a writing partner. And I had a friend, Justin, who was like, Rach, you have all these great stories. Why don't you try telling them through stand-up? And then I took a class, which was not very good, but um, it was a safe space to try out jokes. And I took to it immediately. And my first showcase, I did really well because you know, being an actor and having done improv, I was already comfortable being on stage and always sort of being the comedic relief in musical theater. My timing, you know, was just, it was there. It was kind of, and then I realized I was like, ah, oh, shit, this is, this is good. I'm good at this. Damn it. I'm one of these people. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the world of stand-up is a little, a little dark, you know, people are pretty self-deprecating for the most part. And that's not, like I can be sarcastic and self-deprecating, but that's not really my nature. So, but I get along with those people very well. I can relate. So anyway, to answer your, the other piece of your question, uh, there are some people who sit and write every day. Um, I've done that when I've taken classes and it's great, you know, just almost like the artist way, you know, just writing yeah. for the sake of writing, whether it's good or bad. And then, and my, so in the morning pages, I, yeah. I did that too. Yes. <laughs> so I, it was a great practice. And sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. Um, my friend Joe, who I took a class with, really comes from like a, a journalist sort of writer's mind. So that works for him. And he thinks of it as like the warm up 
so that when you really go to write, you're already kind of in the flow. I think for me though, how I naturally enjoy writing is like you said, you know, something funny happens at a party or I'll make an observation or I'll be having a conversation with a friend and something funny will fall out of my mouth. And I go, hold on, hold on. Let me write this down because my short-term memory sucks. And then I'll, I'll put it in my phone. And hopefully if I haven't had a, a few drinks, I'll look at it the next day and go, oh, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully I, you wrote enough. It'll jog your memory. Yeah, and know like, what the heck it means. Right? Know, pink umbrella farts sometimes doesn't mean anything the next day. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's kind of the way, you know, there's certain structures that work for storytelling. I tend to be more of a storyteller. Uh, that's like my preferred style rather than like be a one-liner. But mm -hmm. no, I've I've had uh, a few one-liners come into my repertoire and that they're fun to toss in between and keep the flow kind of hot and tight, if you will. Uh, you know, like um, I tell a joke about, uh, I, I say, you know, the, the young dudes have been hitting on me recently and I'm flattered, but yeah, I don't want to train a puppy. I need like a battered rescue that just cowers in the corner and just attacks my pussy. Um, <laughs> and then sometimes I throw in like the Sarah McLachlan song from the ASPCA commercials, although not everyone gets that reference. And then, uh, you know, it's like, spend all your time waiting. <laughs> you know, like the uh, and then I was like, man, you know, old dogs, what is it about old dogs? And then I was talking with Jack, you know, my comedy wife. And, and so the one liner that came out was, um, you know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but they sure can lick an asshole. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a good segue. <laughs> Because my next question, I was going to say that, you know, it's, I, I started following you on Instagram and you're like really out there on Instagram. It's great. It's really, it's really wonderful. And, Instagram um, doesn't think so. <laughs> well, yeah, I could imagine they might have issues at moments. Mm. But um, I love the fact that your sexuality is just really out there in your comedy and, you know, in, in your presentation. And I, I would say that it is shameless. And I mean that in the literal sense that it's conveying that there is no shame in sex and bodies and, you know, whatever relationships you want to have. So I, I just would like to hear a little bit about your personal evolution and how you arrived at that kind of sex positivity. Well, firstly, thank you. And I'm glad that you get it. <laughs> Um, cause that is what I am trying to say. Um, whether you want, call it, want to call it sexy, funny or slutty, funny. I mean, I really have never found sex to be shameful. I don't know if it was finding my dad's porn when I was eight or just, um, yeah, being a curious only child and having older friends and just sort of jumping into sexuality very early. Yeah. I just, I was pretty slutty early on and no one really told me it wasn't okay. I guess. Cause like I was kind of like the down ass bitch in high school. Like I was the girl who like drove the Subaru station wagon and I had my baggy jeans and I rolled my blunts. And then, you know, 
maybe we'd get really high and fuck in the back seat. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it, um, I don't know. I had my first threesome when I was like 16 or 17. I used to videotape weddings with my dad and I met a really hot DJ, Anthony Cross and DJ Cross. And, uh, nice. yeah, he was half Puerto Rican, half Italian. He had blue eyes and dark hair and he could dance salsa merengue. It was very charming and charismatic. And, uh, yeah, I, I went over to his house. I probably didn't even have a full license. I had like a junior permit. And uh, I thought he and I were going to like hang out and get fucked up and have sex, which we did except after a couple of shots of Black House and a nice joint, uh, his friend Milan, this hot Czechoslovakian dude, like brolic, comes out of nowhere and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And they're like, yeah, have you ever had a threesome? And I was like, no, but I might like to. And then they sort of like laid me down. And one of them started kissing me while the other one went down on me. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. Like, this is, what? I'm queen for a day. Like, no, this is awesome. So I had mostly pretty heteronormative threesomes for years where it was like cousin two cousins uh best friends uh brothers i mean you know that's on them like you know wow the, the dicks that's, yeah the dicks never cross and you know i i kind of <laughs> fancied myself as like the white little kim so i you know i was having a great time you know um it wasn't until actually a couple of years ago when i uh had like drinks with one of the dudes who was like my booty call in high school. But like I had sex with him and his best friend and him and another dude. And um, he said to me, how were you like that? Like he was slut shaming me like 20 years later. I was like, fuck off. Like you were just as much of a whore as I was. And like, no one had a problem with it. You know, it's only what now? Cause you have a wife and kid or two kids and your fucking dog. Like you, now it's suddenly shameful. Get out of here. Um, and then I found polyamory and I was like, oh, 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 there's people like me in the world. What? And then, you know, had 10 years of deep exploration into that world. Um, and I think, uh, what also coincided with that was going to the nude beach. Um, you know, I was a Robert Moses girl since I was 19. I would go to Lighthouse Beach and, you know, it was awesome. It was free. Um, and it was sometimes sexual, not always sexual, but just like any body type was beautiful. And I was, I really learned to appreciate my body in its full form. Um, and I, I yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm lucky in that I had confidence from a young age and always was proud of my curves before the body positive movement came along as a teenager, even though I was like ugh, fucking like 40 or 50 pounds lighter, I was still curvy. You know, I go, I get the like, yo ma, you dick. And like, I was like, what the hell? But you know, I realized that that was a compliment. So that's, that's the long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a fascinating one too. And, and, you know, I, I know that a lot of times people, at, at least in my experience, I when I was younger, there was like the the virgin whore kind of thing, and like you could you could choose to be the slut, but it was like a 
it was kind of a dirty negative thing to be, but it was definitely the role that it was closest to what I wanted to be. You know what I mean? And it came to me later that that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And you can command respect from people regardless of how prolific your sexuality is or whatever that is, you know? Yeah. And that's something that I think came to me later. It's, but, but I did have the experience of um, understanding my sexuality very young and, and being okay with that. And then having to confront, you know, the world isn't always agree, you know? Oh, for sure. But, I mean, but, you know. it's not like it, I've never been slut shamed before. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think it's a great service that you're do what, what you do with your comedy is not like talking about yourself as a slut, as that's a, in a self-deprecating way. Oh, you for know? sure. I, it's very I, much funny and, yes. and out there in a positive. Thank you. No, that's, so. that's really important to me. I do not like when women, um, self-deprecate about their sexuality because there's nothing to be ashamed of uh being a sexual woman and enjoying sex and being proud of sex and being proud of your body is great and mm -hmm. i think the world is finally waking up it you know it's happening i would i wish it would happen faster um but yeah you know it is improving um and uh yeah i mean look women are still not treated equally and trans people and pretty much the LGBTQ community in general. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's always work. We're to making do. strides. We're making strides. Yeah. Um, yes. 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 <laughs> so do you think comedy has a job in the, in the larger sense? Like, you know, does it heal? Does it serve to stir up the status quo? Like some of those things that need to change? Like what, what do you, see its purpose as if there is one a higher purpose for sure i mean i think the way i approach it um i had a therapist tell me once that i was a shaman and i like that because mm -hmm. i'm literally lifting up the energy of the room and especially i do that when i perform my regular set but i also feel like i do that a lot when i host right that's literally your responsibility is to bring the energy up and then keep it there you know, regardless of how good or bad the comics in the lineup are. Um, and it's interesting because I think having done, you know, being a Reiki master and having done years of Landmark, um, I'm really, and being an empath, I'm, I'm hugely sensitive to what it's like to manage the space and the room and to be responsible for it. Um, and then on top of that, I think, you know, the show Venus Flytrap that I produce with Jack the Stripper, uh, we really... Which is a great name, by the way. Thank you. I she... think Jack the Stripper is, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> she's, well, that's what she, well, she's a retired stripper now, but she was an active stripper for many years. And um, we actually met in that shitty joke school that we went to, um, <laughs> but meeting each other was the best part of it. And, uh, you know, because we, we met each other and she was like, oh she talks about sex. I talk about sex work. We're both sluts. This is great. You know, and we started hanging out and then a couple, I don't know, six months into sort of hanging out and doing open mics and doing shows together. Uh, we decided to start producing together and the show has really grown into this beautiful baby, this beautiful safe space for LGBTQ and sex workers and just like people that really don't want to go to the average bro show, 
you know, shows that can talk about sex parties and sex work and STIs and gender issues, but in a fun and empowering way, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I, yes, people do learn from my shows. I'm sure I did a show up in Connecticut recently and the, the, the median age range was about 70. So there's grandmothers that probably now know what a strap on is that maybe didn't know what it was before. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So yeah, I mean, if I can educate people about um, sex, that's great. Um, if I can talk about it in a way that they're like, wow, she doesn't seem embarrassed by that at all. You know, that's great. Or if they see my almost nude photos on Instagram, wow, she's really putting herself out there. Like maybe I should try to put myself out there more. I, I've literally seen uh, other comedians, uh, female, because we try to keep our lineups mostly femme, femme identifying and woke. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I've made the mistake of, you know, allowing cis shitty cis white dudes on the show and it just it sucks so no more of that they don't need my help um yeah the show the show and and comedy yeah look some people look at comedy from a perspective of you know being equal opportunity offenders and being able to say the things that other people can't say and people are getting upset because or comics are getting upset because our culture they feel has become too politically correct um I think there's a way to go against the grain, but also still be sensitive. Like mm -hmm. I'm never going to make a racist joke. I just don't find them funny. I'm never going to make a trans joke. I just don't find them funny, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's lots of material that, you know, it's not, it's, I think a lot of people have a, um, there's like a prototype of that kind of humor. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think you, I, I sometimes, and I'm definitely, uh, this, this show is called The Leftscape, so I am not a conservative by any means, but <laughs> there are times when I do feel challenged by things that we're not supposed to say anymore that I think are stifling, mm. but those are not among them. I think we don't need racist humor or, or transphobic humor or things like that, you know? So, um, well, yeah. I have a, I have a mixed relationship with that kind of approach to the world. I think it's, um, it's overall, it's definitely a plus that we're, we're learning to really understand and think about what our words mean, you know? Yeah. I mean, the only time that I've seen, for example, like a misogynistic joke that I liked is one that wasn't actually misogynistic where the comic was making you think in the beginning of the joke that they were and then using a comedic device to flip it around yeah, make you go, Oh, but the caveat with those kind of jokes is that some people in the audience will think in you <laughs> that you might be misogynistic in the beginning and cut you off before you can even get to that punchline. Mm. Cause audiences mm -hmm. are not afraid to speak their minds anymore. So, <laughs> and I, I've, I've seen some dudes like seriously bomb and get shut down by women just being like, Nope, Nope. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, they don't know this is actually a good joke, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now that we're in this place, like politically, where I think for it, it, it's definitely more trouble than it's been in a long time, at least in an overt way. Yeah. You know, it, is that 
has comedy changed, do you think, or has the role of comedy changed? I mean, I know that some of the the, the late night people kind of saved my life, just Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers and people that are, you know, really talking about politics overtly. Um, yeah. How does that kind of humor sit with you? And do you think that humor that doesn't isn't about that? Is it still I really respect the two guys that you mentioned, and especially Trevor Noah and Samantha yes. B. Yes. Uh, the two of them themselves and their writers are geniuses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John Oliver, I mean, there's so many of them that just do it brilliantly and I leave it to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, look, there's a whole, um, I tried it a little bit when I took the class with my friend Joe, where like you, you can be sort of what I would call like a current event comic. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what those shows are, which is brilliant, right? You're literally taking current events and making jokes on the spot. Like there, there are some people that are really good at Twitter. I suck. It's just not my thing, right? I've tried it every now and then I have a stroke of brilliance, but it requires watching the news incessantly, right? If you want to be a writer for those type of shows, you literally are on a news feed 24 seven. And, um, for me, I am too sensitive for that. I can barely watch the debates. Um, I can barely watch when my roommate has MSNBC or CNN on. Um, I have my various sources where I get like synopses of things. And um, those shows are really great too for that. Um, so I leave it to them. And I think comedy is great for that if it's done the way they do it, if it's done in a smart way. I don't know. People are like, oh, do you have Trump jokes? I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about that idiot. I, I hear about him all fucking day. Right. He, you know, <laughs> just turn on Twitter. He's right there making an ass of himself. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't need to write jokes about him. And I feel like, you know, when he first was elected, I started to go, huh, should I make jokes about this? And I did write a couple of jokes. Um, and then I was like, I don't even enjoy telling this joke. And I felt like the audiences were like, they're for the ride. And oftentimes my audiences, at least of my show, they're kind of, they're down with whatever I say because they just share similar opinions, right? Like I could just talk at them and they're like, whoa, and I'm, I'm very blessed in that way. But also like people, they don't want to hear about it. They hear about it all day. They want to go and not think about their job and not think about Trump and not think about shitty things they would you know art is escapism you know for the audience member yeah i want to take them on a journey somewhere else you know go down the path of rachel's wacky sex life you know (laughs) (laughs) do you feel like that's the same with your acting and and comedy and your singing and performing all the things that you do i know you recently did um a tribute to the band which i'm so sorry i missed that would have been fabulous to hear that That that's fun oh yeah so is it all sort of about taking people to a different place that they're not needing to worry about things for, for a minute. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily walk into it thinking about that specifically, but I know for myself, when I go to a show, I love art that can like sort of take me on a ride, you know, like suddenly I'm transported somewhere else, a memory, a place, um, you know, like how music, like you, you just, or like even a play, a really good play or a musical. Um, yeah. And I think with comedy, um, 
oh, what is he, what do they say? Um, there's like two things that make a joke work. Oh, I should know this, right? <laughs> what you've, the, you've internalized it. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of them is it's either relatable or something else. Um, all right. Well, if I think of it, I'll let you know. Okay. Because <laughs> look, I, I talk about things like uh, sometimes when I talk about my sex party jokes, um, not everyone has been to a sex party. Um, but if the joke is written well, you could laugh at it, you know? Um, I don't know. It's on a note somewhere in a notebook. (laughs) (laughs) right. Now I want to (laughs) know. So that's all right. If if you think of it, tell me, I'll put it on our website for sure. And, and I just want to wrap this up and just where can people uh, find out where you're going to be? Like what's your website? You know, what have you, what are you up to in the next, you know, a few couple months so we can oh my goodness. take aware We're of you. Done already? That's it? Yes. Oh it's goodness. a it's a short little thing. It's about I love 20 that. minutes. That's yeah. beautiful. I you know what? Podcasts that drone on for hours. <laughs> this is beautiful. Well, uh, my website is www.rachelgreen.nyc. So that's R-A-C-H-E-L-G-R-E-E-N dot nyc like new york city um yes it is the same name as the character from friends <sighs> what are you gonna do um <laughs> that's why i'm a dot nyc and not a dot com um and then on social media i'm the one rachel green so the word the the number one and then rachel green uh our monthly show the venus fly trap at the lantern on bleaker street in greenwich village so we're almost always the last monday of the month but yeah all this stuff is on my website and i i blast everything on social media so you know you don't have to remember it this is great (laughs) all right thank you for having me this was so fun i'm so glad to talk to you thank you so much rachel yay Hey, this is Robin Renee here. One of my New Year's resolutions was to get back out on the road and play some music. If you'd like to see me in your city, please get in touch. Is there a listening room, university concert series, club, event, or yoga studio near you that would like what I do? Let me know. If you or a friend would be into hosting a house concert, get in touch and let's make it happen. I'm doing it indie style, so your help and input really matters. You can contact me and check out my music at robinrenee.com. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing from you and I'm excited to see you in 2020. Well, one thing I think is awesome is knowing your sexual self. So I would agree that with that, that that is awesome. I think that's awesome. (laughs) And um, 
I, I was thinking about that just because I was just, I don't know, thinking about when I was much younger and not really feeling at ease with um, expressing what I wanted sexually and things like that. It's just, it's something that really can shift in one's life, I think, which becomes a much more positive thing. And, you know, and just thinking about people who I've known who are more or less interested in really having a deep connection with what their desires are. And I find it, I just think that it can be a very amazing transformative thing when we really take the time to know ourselves and what we are interested in and that sort of thing. How would you suggest somebody do that? Well, I mean, be curious, ask questions, masturbate a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually key. You know, I mean, I think we, we get taught a lot of shame and things. And if you never touch yourself or only sort of, or if it's some sort of very perfunctory like, I just need to get something done attitude. <laughs> like, you, it's, it's not that hard to not really know what you like in terms of even just touch, you know? Well, that's true, because if nobody's touched you in that way, or if you haven't explored all of your zones, then you might not necessarily know what is going to set you off. Right. Right, exactly. I mean, I actually know someone who talked about not ever having had an orgasm until after they had children. And they were just talking to a friend and kind of the friend kind of got this idea of like, wait a minute, I don't think she's ever experienced this, you know, (laughs) and kind of explained and gave her a vibrator or whatever. Just said like, you need to (laughs) explore this, you know. Because it was two very young people who got married and didn't know anything and didn't didn't have the means to even know, know what they were not understanding, you know. So yeah, so it's it's a thing, and I think it's something that I, I'm glad to be part of sex positive communities where people talk about those things, and it's not un, it's not that unusual to it's not unusual to ask a partner what they like or to or ask for what you like or that sort of thing so that it the, the idea of communication around sexuality is not unusual i think that helps mm. people to learn and i think this is part of the 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 old not wisdom old wisdom and i'm using air quotes around the word wisdom where they were saying that a woman isn't sexually mature until she's 30 mm. mm-hmm. Because it takes, because I'm, I'm hoping that this is changing in our, our current society with, with the more, you know, with the advent of the internet and very easily findable information in whatever form, including, I guess, pornography. I, I could see in, in like for our, our generation growing up and everything that we're not exposed to this stuff until we're in our thirties. I mean, by then, by then it's like you have been around enough or hopefully, and, and that you've, you've seen and done enough things that you can actually then know what you like, like to have done to you, for example, and be able to articulate it. Because I remember it was a, it was like a, a French wisdom that, you know, women under 30 aren't, you know, they don't know what they're doing sexually. And that, and that's because nobody teaches anybody. Mm, mm-hmm. How to do anything. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, it's like, that's your, you know, your twenties is when you're exploring all of this stuff. And by the time you're 30, you kind of have it figured out. And I'm hoping that, that younger people are figuring this out earlier because it's a lot of missed opportunities for pleasure and happiness. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. And, and well, stigma is part of it, you know, just being yeah. able to know that it's okay to explore. And I think they just, the earlier you understand that, you know, and how to do that safely, of course, you know, I mean, but you can learn about how to protect yourself if you're going to be engaging with someone else or, or ways that, things to do that are completely not not going to cause harm or disease or pregnancy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that, and those are the things that a lot of, we never, traditionally never get talked about at all. You know, like how to reach your G-spot or what could reach, what type of toy might be good for that? Or or is the G-spot still a thing? Because in, um, I was going to talk about, mention the Vagina Bible, which I read well, I read, started reading, and then I put it down, and other got distracted. But she discusses the structure, for example, of the of the clitoris, and I did not know that it wasn't just that little mm -hmm. button, you know, uh, that it actually has nerves that go inside and on the on the outer labia and all this other stuff. I, I had no idea. I, I mean, I might have had an idea because like some stuff feels good when things are happening in those areas. Right, right. But I think she's also she also mentioned something like the G spot really isn't a thing, but I don't know. But the other thing is she does describe pretty detail in pretty detailed words what a female orgasm is. And there were things that I thought were orgasms that were not what she was describing. I mean, I've had those, the things that she's describing for sure. And, and one thing I am going to throw out there, some of the things that she was describing, which is mostly the pulsating of the whole vulva in, in a rhythmic kind of way, like the way a penis ejaculates, mm -hmm. it's a similar kind of involuntary muscular contraction. Mm -hmm. And I experienced that, while I was giving birth mm. and until they gave me the episiotomy, which is uh, for those that don't know, that's when they cut the, the vaginal opening to, uh, to prevent your, your vagina from tearing when the head comes out, which they, yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess we need to have a TMI warning at the beginning. Of this People could figure it out. <laughs> it's a sex topic if you don't want to hear it. It's a sex and topic. Whatever. <laughs> don't listen. But I was really surprised that that happened. And I was not thrilled that they kind of stopped it from going to where it was going to go with, you know, with scissors and, and uh, a big shot of lidocaine. Wow. So, but, you know, at that point during the birth, you're kind of... <laughs> You're kind of letting them do their thing because they're going to do their thing. So, anyway. yeah, I've heard about <laughs> childbirth having a, a an ecstatic or euphoric dimension, possibly. So I'm curious about what you said about the G spot, because I could imagine that it's not it might be described differently than has been described in the past, like in, in terms of its construction or something. But I find it, it definitely is something in my body that has a very distinct effect. So to say that it's not a thing at all, I, I, I'm confused by that idea. I'm looking it up right now. Okay. 
Ah, here it is. Uh, what's the deal with vaginal orgasms and the G spot? I think it. I think she's talking about that. The the female orgasm is not a vaginal orgasm. And it is hard to overestimate the damage done by Sigmund Freud in popularizing the myth of the vaginal orgasm. That's how she starts this section. Okay. <laughs> uh, only one third of women are capable of achieving orgasm with penile penetration alone, meaning hands off penile thrusting only. So the idea that everyone should be having orgasms this way results in two thirds of women believing there's something wrong with their sexual wiring when they are really are perfect. Uh, not orgasming with unassisted penile penetration is not a flaw. It's a feature. Further supporting this vaginal orgasm myth is the idea of the G-spot supposedly identified by Dr. Ernst Grafenberg in 1950. In modern lore, this is a magical spot on the vaginal wall beneath the bladder that when touched will drive women wild. Again, many women feel frustrated when they don't have a G-spot. Digging through the data, we find that Dr. Grafenberg's original paper did not describe a special spot. His paper actually is actually called the role of the urethra in female orgasms. And he describes an erotic zone in front of the vagina that was intimate with the urethra and lower portion of the bladder. Yes, he was likely describing the body, root, and bulb of the clitoris as they envelop the urethra. Hmm. Okay. So the G-spot still is is basically the, more of the clitoris. Mm. Okay. All right. I mean, that, so, that makes sense to me. but I, And I don't think I've ever thought of it as... Well, I will uh, let me ex tell you what I think. Yeah. <laughs> for me, and this is one of the things that I've learned that is important for my desire is that I I I can love being touched there in that region, but it's I need to really have a trust with that person and I need to be because it's it brings about a really intense kind of kind of I almost can't really my things happen in my brain that's like incredibly <laughs> like I can't it's kind of beyond, you know, and uh -huh. I and I have to be able to really super trust someone emotionally and physically to be able to let go to that point. Right. And it's not so necessarily an orgasm; it's an intensity, you know. Yeah. Well, it's also it sounds like you're 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 there's other stuff going on. It sounds like there's stuff going on in your op. There's like chakras opening up or something. Yeah, are, it's a real kind of opening experience. Yeah. So I've learned to become very honest about when I desire that kind of touch and, and how, you know, because uh -huh. oftentimes guys will be like, they just want to like stick fingers in, <laughs> in this very sort of, uh, I don't know, almost haphazard, haphazard or something. <laughs> it's just, it's not, it's not, it's not working, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think part of the confidence that I've, gained i i guess in years is to be able to not only say what i want but what i don't want and sometimes that's absolutely not what i want until mm. it really really is and I, you know but it has to be i'm glad to have taken that on to my terms you know yeah but the good thing is that i don't believe i've ever felt that there's something lacking if you don't have an, an orgasm a piv orgasm which is almost not a thing for me and maybe maybe it's happened once or twice but it's not really you know so I don't, i've never felt like that's and piv that's is penis and vagina yes okay <laughs> <laughs> now with the initials again right <laughs> yeah 
me I with my, I need to, I need to know what the acronyms are. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> I'm not That's... letting, I'm not letting the British Broadcasting Company confuse me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. You know, but I think that's really learning those kinds of things, just sort of physical touch things, and also learning about your fetishes. I find those, I find fetishes completely fascinating, <laughs> actually. And, you know, I, I think we humans like weird things for reasons that I'm not even sure we know, you know? I think it uh -huh. comes from something... I don't know. I don't know where some of them come from. I'm just, I think they're amazing though. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. The fetishes are, are certainly, I, I, that's something I don't even know if other animals on our planet could be considered to have fetishes even. I don't know if anybody's researched that. If, if humans are the only ones that, that want to, that do that. Hmm. And I think, Maybe <laughs> there's there's some grant money we could probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because I, I you know everybody's saying, oh well, humans, we are you know that you're intelligent and you're human because you're using tools or you're doing this, and then we find these other animals that are using tools and doing these other things. But if none of them have fetishes, then that's what separates. Maybe that's humans. what separates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I think see, that would be funny. But a lot of a lot of other creatures don't have as many objects, you that's know. True. So, oh, that's true. And and I and I, and actually, I I've you know, dogs will hump legs and other objects. So maybe oh, they totally will. <laughs> Dolphins will hump all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so maybe that's not true that the humans don't <laughs> humans don't have a monopoly on that either. So <laughs> I'm glad we've cleared that up now. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but would they really get into like um, a, a you know penny loafers or something? I don't know. We'd have to, <laughs> test, we'd have to test. <laughs> okay, what's a penny loafer fetish? That's just seeing someone in penny loafers turns you on. Is that is that the is that what that is? Um, is that well? I guess works? it could be anything. I mean, I think I think just about any object that exists, somebody wants to jerk off on it <laughs> or well, or yeah, wear it or thirty four. I guess or what? Rule thirty-four of the internet: if there, if there is a, if there is a thing, their porn exists with that thing. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I think you know, some people might want to wear the thing, or some people might want to see someone wearing it, or they might want to do things with their genitals with it. <laughs> They're probably all separate, but related fetishes. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This was an excerpt from our longer Patreon segment, Knowing Your Sexual Self. And if you would like to hear the rest of our discussion, which includes a lot of really, really personal stuff, uh, go to our Patreon and sign up and you can hear all of it. <laughs>